Welcome to The Intuitive Customer, where we discuss how you can improve your customer experience and your bottom line by embracing behavioral economics. And now, here are your hosts, world-renowned thought leader on customer experience, Colin Shaw, and Professor Ryan Hamilton from Emory University. What they did is they took cheek swabs from some of these boys who were willing to volunteer, and so they could measure testosterone levels. And the Confederate at this point was a very attractive teenage girl. So the riskiness of the stunts that the boys were trying shot up dramatically. (laughs) They were doing much riskier stuff in the presence of an attractive female. People prefer the risky option. So another way of saying that is people hate the sure loss. If you say, if you choose this, 400 people will die for sure. People do not like that. And so they would rather go with the riskier option. And insurance is evidence of risk aversion. So how could the same person possibly go to casinos and buy insurance? And the answer, of course, is that these risk preferences change based on domain. There's some excitement in gambling and knowing that you're playing the odds when it comes to your house or the financial well-being of your descendants. If you die, those risk preferences change. And this may get back to the point you were raising earlier about how close you are to the risk. So the other day we had this financial advisor come and see us and he was reviewing our portfolio and as he was doing so, I remembered that um, my portfolio was slightly more risky than my wife's and I was thinking about this podcast that we're doing because that's always tended to be the case. I've always been one that's been sort of wishing to take more risks. Sometimes they pay off, sometimes they don't. Then my good lady wife thought that would be an interesting subject for today about risk aversion. So tell me, as usual, as my marriage guidance counselor, tell me what's happening. (laughs) I would point out that her decision to marry you is sort of risky. Good point. Well made. Yeah. That's one of the things we can talk about is people have different tolerances for risk in different domains of life, but then also different people have different tolerances for risk. So when we talk about risk aversion, we're talking about the general tendency among human beings to want to avoid risk. Yeah. People tend to, on average, like sure bets over risky bets. That's just generally true. But as with most science on human behavior, there are lots and lots of exceptions to that. And I think we're going to talk about several today and also talk about some of the things that can change a person's risk preferences. I presume that sort of ties in with just survival of the species, doesn't it? So in other words, you know, if I'm not going to walk off this cliff because that's going to be a bit too risky or jumping over to this ledge is going to be a bit too risky or whatever. So it's really interesting that the developmental psychology of it or the evolutionary psychology of it, on the one hand, yes, risk avoidance seems like something that would be healthy for the species. On the other hand, taken to an extreme, you know, if you'd get too risk avoidant, you'd never get out of bed in the morning. So there's this interesting interplay between when we take risks and when we don't. And, you know, you know, you and I have talked before about 
entrepreneurship and the risks of you know starting your own company versus you know the somewhat less risky path of working for an established company and sure. what drives both of those decisions and we all know that most new companies fail and most new business ventures fail and yet people are willing to do it over and over again and because people are willing to risk it we end up with large thriving companies out of it so it's this balance it's not that risk is bad but if we're too risky that's obviously a problem sure just as you were saying that i was thinking of my new granddaughter and i was talking to my daughter the other day her mother and just saying actually you gotta let her make mistakes and you know she is gonna burn her hand occasionally and all those things and you can try and wrap them up in cotton wool but actually they don't learn if they don't make mistakes yeah. And, you know, I have several kids and it's interesting. So again, one of the things that we'll talk about is the fact that people differ in terms of risk preferences. And just in my own kind of anecdotal experience, risk preferences seem to come out fairly early. You know, you'll have toddlers who seem to be a little bit more cautious in how they approach the world and, you know, afraid of new people or afraid of new experiences or I'm a little bit more timid. And then you'll have others who just have no fear at all and take a lot of risks and, you know, are willing to go after those kind of things. So people differ in these things. So tell us a bit about the theory behind it, and then we can have a debate around how does that apply to customer experience. Sure. So one of my favorite things about risk aversion and understanding risk aversion is understanding the things that change it. You can try to to anticipate whether you are serving a customer segment that is more or less risk averse. Sometimes that's useful. Usually it's more often useful to think about what are the settings that people are in that are going to make them more or less risk seeking or risk averse. Right. So let's start with the obvious ones. Testosterone, it turns out, tends to be correlated with risk-taking. So there's this great study. For some reason, I think it might have been run in Australia. I'm not 100% sure on that, but that's what I'm recalling. But these researchers went out and went to a skate park. So where these teenage boys, mostly boys, were riding skateboards and doing tricks and so on. And what they did is they had some experts who were there, part of this research team, who gauged the riskiness of the stunts they were trying. Right, So there are various difficulties in the tricks that you could try. And what they did is they took cheek swabs from some of these boys who were willing to volunteer. And so they could measure testosterone levels, Right, uh, these kids as they were skating. They then had what researchers call a confederate. So this is somebody who's working with the research team, but is kind of a plant. And the confederate at this point was a very attractive teenage girl. So they had somebody who's of an age with these skater boys who just came to the skate park and just watched. And they noted two things. First of all, the riskiness of the stunts that the boys were trying shot up dramatically. <laughs> they, they, they were doing much riskier stuff in the presence of an attractive female. Yeah. And the second thing was, as they continued to take these cheek swabs, testosterone levels went up. Yeah, I can imagine. And testosterone does not exist just purely in men, of course. So women are also affected by this. Sure. But testosterone, there's this hormonal influence that can cause a person to behave more or less risky. And certainly some of the stuff that I've been reading as I've been thinking about and preparing for this podcast is this whole piece around, and you heard a lot of it, or people talk about it recently, 
or over the last few years anyway, about women in business. Mm. And would the financial crash had have the Great Recession, would that have happened if the majority of businesses were run by women? And in fact, they got this concept of instead of Lehman Brothers, Lehman Sisters. <laughs> and certainly part of that was around the levels of testosterone, which, as you say, is obviously women have testosterone, but I guess it's just not to the same levels that men can have it. Right. There's been a lot of good research on this. I'm less familiar with it. So we'll touch on this briefly sure. with the understanding that there's much better information out there than you and I are going to be able to cover. Yeah, But yeah, I am familiar with at least some that shows that having more women on corporate boards does in fact change the decision making sure. of those boards uh, in certain ways. One of those may be to lead to less sure. risky decision making. You know, As with all of this stuff, even in areas where there are reliable gender differences, Think about it in terms of the distributions around those means. So there are women who are every bit as you know risk-seeking as the craziest hormonal teenage boy. Yeah. And there are men who are very risk-averse. But yeah, I mean, there's evidence to suggest that um, more balanced leadership across genders does, in fact, do some good things for companies. I guess this goes into the whole issue around diversity. And, you know, you can imagine having a board, whether it is male or female, having a board of high risk takers, and you can imagine that failing quite a lot. Or you can imagine having a board that's got, you know, some risk takers and some that aren't. And therefore, you know, diversity becomes a key attribute. Yeah. I mean, arguing the devil's advocate on the other side, regardless of gender differences, the personality types who find themselves in investment banking tend to be risk takers sure. and risk seekers, male and female. Right. So it could be that Lehman sisters could have made a lot of the same decisions, presuming that their leadership and their board was drawn from the ranks of investment bankers, yeah. male or female. Yeah. But I mean, it's a really interesting topic and an interesting hypothesis. The other approach that we can take to understanding risk aversion is what changes it. And we've talked about, you know, hormonal changes is one. Another thing, we'll come back to a topic we've talked about several times already, which is loss aversion. It turns out that losses versus gains can change our risk tolerance, our risk preferences, yep. which is interesting. So I'm going to tell you about one of the first experiments that was run that looked at this. It was by our old friends, Kahneman and Tversky, who we've mentioned several times before. Kahneman, of course, won the Nobel Prize in economics yep. in the early 2000s. So uh, according to this study, so it has a very unfortunate name. It was run way back in the 1980s, and they call it the Asian disease problem. Right. I didn't choose the name. No, <laughs> So here's the situation. It says, imagine the U.S. is preparing for the outbreak of an unusual Asian disease, which is expected to kill 600 people. Two alternative programs to combat the disease have been proposed. Assume the exact scientific estimates of the consequences of the programs are as follows. So you just ask people to imagine that the CDC has, for some reason, asked their opinion, and they need to choose one of these two programs. So program A, if that one is adopted, 200 people will be saved out of the 600. Yep. If program B is adopted, there's a one-third probability that 600 people will be saved and a two-thirds probability that no one will be saved. Right. Now, if there's no wrong answer here. Sure. So you can compute what economists call the expected value of each option. And the expected value of those two options is the same. 
expected value is that 200 will be saved in either case. Sure. So the only difference between those is your risk preferences. Sure. Do you want the one that is sure that you know that 200 people will be saved or do you want the risky one where maybe everyone will be saved or maybe no one will be saved? When they asked people, most people said program A. Most people liked the one where they knew 200 people would be saved. Yep. Same scenario. This time, though, the options are described slightly differently. If program C is adopted, 400 people will die out of the 600. If program D is adopted, there's a one-third probability that no one will die and a two-thirds probability that 600 will die. Now, if you're good at math, you know that if 600 people are infected and 200 are saved, that means 400 will die. These two pairs of programs are identical. But one is framed in terms of gains and one is framed in terms of losses. And when it's framed in terms of losses, people prefer the risky option. Right. So another way of saying that is people hate the sure loss. If you say, if you choose this, 400 people will die for sure. People do not like that. Right. And so they rather go with the riskier option. Let Beyond Philosophy help you discover what your customers really want, not what they say they want, by uncovering the hidden drivers of value in your customer experience to create real ROI. Contact Beyond Philosophy by going to beyondphilosophy.com slash contact. That's beyondphilosophy.com slash contact. So, and I presume that would change if things became more personal. So in other words, we're talking here about abstract numbers and we're talking about the CDC, in other words, the government department that's going to make this decision, as it were. But if you turn around and said, and my family's part of group A or B or whatever it may be, then that would severely influence what you decide. I would guess you're right. I would guess that kind of the closer you are to this, the more risk averse you would become. Yeah. It's in that domain of losses, though, where we'll see people actually reverse those natural preferences and become risk-seeking. Sure. A lot of gambling behavior can be explained this way. So there have been studies that have been done at horse tracks where the later in the day that it is, the riskier the bets that people take. So they start betting on longer and longer odds. Sure. And the reason is that the longer you are at the track, the more money you're losing, because that's the way that gambling works, kids. Yeah. And so as you're losing money, then you become risk-seeking. Yeah. You don't want to lock in your losses. That's a sure loss, and you don't like that. So you stay there, you stay at the table, you stay at the track, and you continue betting, and you bet riskier and riskier odds because you're hoping to win back all that money so you can be positive for the day. So from a customer experience perspective, loss aversion, I mean, for me, this has always been sort of at the root of customer complaints. Mm. And we've done a podcast on this previously, so you may want to look that up. But, you know, a customer complaint is that the customer thinks that they should have something that should have been included, and it's not. And therefore, they've effectively lost that. So there's this perception of of loss at the heart of those things. And therefore, you know, I guess the question starts to become how you position that loss You could obviously build around how the product or service that you've got will help you keep what you've got, or will the danger with not having it is you will lose something. And I guess at the end of the day, that's what insurance is all about as well. Yeah. And insurance is another interesting example of risk preferences. Yeah. So the reason that we buy insurance is because we are risk averse. 
in many settings. There's this interesting conundrum amongst economists where for a long time, economists had thought that people's risk preferences were stable. So you might be risk seeking and I might be risk averse, but that just describes us as a person. Sure. We should be consistent in that. And so if you take that perspective, it's really, really weird for the same person to both buy insurance and gamble. Yeah. Because gambling is evidence of risk seeking and insurance is evidence of risk aversion. So how could the same person possibly go to casinos and buy insurance? And the answer, of course, is that these risk preferences change based on domain. There's some excitement in gambling and knowing that you're playing the odds when it comes to your house or the financial well-being of your descendants if you die those risk preferences change. And this may get back to the point you were raising earlier about how close you are to the risk. It must be scenario-based, mustn't it? Yeah. Also, you're, and I'm now again just thinking about, you know, over your lifetime, there'll be risks that you're willing to take when you're younger than the risks that you're willing to take when you've got kids at school or going to university and so on and so forth against the risks that you're going to take, you know, when you are somewhat older. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So what does this mean from a customer experience perspective? What does it mean that you would need to do? When I think about risk aversion, I think about it in pretty abstract terms because that's the way it's tended to be studied. From a customer experience management standpoint, what does risk mean to customers from a CX perspective? I think risk means for me, it's either risk in the product. I mean, you can either be selling, obviously, as you're just saying, you know, insurance is selling a form of risk aversion. Mm -hmm. But it's also to do with, for me, it's to do with the company that you go with. And again, this is can be different scenario based. So, you know, who am I likely to put my business with? Or do I want to make a certain decision? And back in the day, I used to work for British Telecom, BT. Mm-hmm. And one of the reasons that people came to BT was they knew that we weren't the most forward-thinking company in the world, but they also knew that whenever something went wrong, we'd get it fixed. So, in other words, that sort of ties into that risk aversion. Yeah, yeah, it was the safe bet. Yeah, I mean, it's the classic example of nobody ever got sacked for buying IBM. Yeah, and even when you start thinking of careers and stuff like that, you know, there are people that will take risks in their careers by doing and saying something that they maybe shouldn't have or not doing or saying something. So I think it comes in all over the place. I think it, you know, even when you think about, uh, you know, I love technology. So, you know, the I'm an early adopter when it comes to technology. But all of those things have a risk attached. Now, the risk is I'm going to lose money or the risk is I'm going to lose time, you know, time and effort. I remember having one of those palm devices back in the day that you could type a letter with using your palm and i must have spent bloody ages trying to work, <laughs> trying to work out how to type this letter now you think about it now you just think that was a waste of complete waste of time so i think it comes in all over the place but i think certainly with a lot of it is around just who am i dealing with even if you think about references i mean you know what's a reference all about you know when somebody says that's great you know we're looking to employ you or engage you can we have a reference well that's they're trying to cut down on the risk of choosing the wrong company aren't they that's right
So if I go back and start answering my own question about what does this mean then? So what does this mean that you do? I think it goes back for me, which is to say that, A, you need to understand that, that risk aversion, loss aversion is there. And that drives a lot of human behavior. And as we are saying, you know, some different people have different levels of risk that they're willing to take. But that's going to also come up in different scenarios and in different times of life. So as I was thinking about this prior to the podcast, I was thinking this is where personas come in really handy. Mm. Because you think you've got a product here and you've got somebody that's a 17-year-old and you've got somebody that's you know married with three kids and big mortgage and then you've got somebody that's just retired or whatever else. And, you know, those three groups of people are likely to have different risk profiles. Mm. And therefore, you can start to pull that together in in different personas. Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a great way to think about it. So, I mean, in terms of practical takeaways from this, identify risk as a driver of behavior, risk preferences. So can you segment by risk preference? You know, as you said, do you have different personas who may be more risk-seeking or more risk-averse than usual, than average? Yeah. Can you manage risk? So if you know that you're dealing with a segment that is very risk-averse, recognize that being the best on the market may not be enough. You know, can you also be the best on the market while mitigating the risk of changing whatever behavior they're currently engaged in? Yeah. And I think it's the whole story bit then that, you know, if you then start to, I guess it ties back, doesn't it, to sort of trust and all those things. But what I was thinking of was the reviews. So when people put up reviews, you know, part of the reason for reading those again is to go, is this a company that I can check? Is this product really going to do what it says it's going to do? Is this a service I really want? Because actually, I don't want the risk of trying it out and what's the price point and all those other wonderful things. So I think for me, you've got to decide where you are. Is your product or service, is this what type of market is it addressing? Is it addressing something that is going to be risky or not risky? Is it going to risk aversion apply or not apply? So that's sort of out into the market. The second area is then looking at your customer base and going, okay, so given that, where is our customer base? What type of person should we be targeting? What type of personas do they have? And therefore, how can we market them? What should be our uh, message that we send out to them? I love it. Good. Okay. All right. Well, I guess we call it a day. So thanks a lot. If you've got any suggestions or any subjects that you want us to cover or any questions, then please don't hesitate to contact us. Just send us an email at contact at beyondphilosophy.com. That's contact at beyondphilosophy.com. Those will get passed to Ryan and I, and we'll have a look at them and see if we can include the topic in uh, future episodes. So thanks very much for your time. Thanks, everybody. This has been The Intuitive Customer with Colin Shaw and Professor Ryan Hamilton. But it doesn't end here. Just go to beyondphilosophy.com slash podcast to find all of our shows, access free tools and resources, and subscribe, won't you? That way you'll never miss a show. That's beyondphilosophy.com slash podcast. And we'll talk with you next time on The Intuitive Customer.